Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Well, welcome back to the Addiction Connection Podcast. Yeah, this is number 38 in case you're counting. I don't think I am. No, you usually say the wrong thing. Now, this is part two of our IV drug use bacterial infection series. Actually, it's a series of two. Well, then we're going to do the article at some point. So it will be three. That's pretty good, part three. So we stopped at pulmonary infections, which oh, I, I could hardly sleep waiting for this. Because <laughs> we taped the other one 30 seconds ago. <laughs> what? No, it's been a week. He's old. He takes a lot of naps. So, so yeah, talk about this whole deal with inhaling these types of things. So, you know, pulmonary, this isn't necessarily an IV drug use risk, although it is really neat because it is still bacterial infections. Some people do do both, depending on where they're at, um, different complications can arise. So it's important to touch on. But pulmonary lung infections are often the most common risk with drug use, which if you go back to the last podcast, we said, what, one in three or one in five will have some type of skin and soft tissue a year. So if this is more common, I mean, you're having pneumonia annually, roughly. Yeah, that's not so good. I've actually got a guy who keeps doing this and uh, inhaling things and then ends up in the hospital uh, and tells him he's having an asthma attack. When it's not necessarily, like you just said inhaling, so I just want to reference, it's not necessarily like huffing, like inhaling gasoline and glues. It's the snorting and smoking of your common illicit drugs that seems bizarre to say common anyway when they present often will be a typical kind of presentation and often can be a typical radiographic findings and that's sometimes just due to the frequency of infection and scarring and just different things in the lungs so it makes it more complicated is what i'm saying mm. and it looks like often you know kind of looks like aspiration pneumonia so they go in there they get an x-ray and they're like ah aspiration pneumonia but why in a 30 year old right and they are at more increased risk. And a lot of that, in, in the r- 10 times increased risk of community-acquired pneumonia, and that's often just because of the impaired ability of our lungs to naturally clear itself, which is, again, why aspiration is more common. Um, people who are immunocompromised and don't necessarily just think all oh, HIV immunocompromised, but oftentimes um, injection drug users or just um, illicit users will often have lower nutritional status, which makes them more susceptible. And susceptible to other things, uh, even TB. So this is a group that also, you've got to look for TB. Right, and HIV. And they will, again, often have atypical presentations, especially if you're looking, and this is going to be a more rare person, but if they have TB with HIV, um, they often won't have these normal cavitary lesions. Um, They can often have a negative tuberculosis test. Um, but when you're looking at their chest x-ray, really focus on the hilum, the mediastinal lymphadenopathy. Um, those are the things you really got to look for. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. And I, this it kind of ties into what we talked about earlier with the whole endovascular infections and, you know, being getting as well septic pulmonary emboli, which um, that's not something you want as well. No. Um, back to the tuberculosis just for a second. People who are more at risk of just getting tuberculosis, and this isn't necessarily your HIV-positive patients, 
um, which does, of course, increase it. But pulmonary tuberculosis in general, people living in crowded areas, so homeless shelters, um, not that you really refer to this anymore, but quote-unquote crack houses, shooting galleries, um, so places where people congregate um, often. Yeah, and that's really a tough thing, too, because often the biggest problem with that patient group is, you know, they get delayed diagnosis, and they just don't, you know, their compliance to treatment is poor. So um, they can have those problems as well as co-infection. So here is another thing I guess I had never even heard of, to be honest, is shotgunning. So this isn't necessarily a person who often will smoke things on their own, maybe is a snorter, does IV drugs, but sometimes they will have this thing called shotgunning. So someone else smokes and inhales the drug, then expels smoke into their mouth. Often this is done with crack cocaine. Hmm. Yeah, I had not heard of that as well. I would not recommend this during COVID. No. I mean, ever, but especially during COVID. Yeah. And of course, one of the last little things we'll touch on with TB is really kind of these atypical presentations, especially TB with HIV. Uh, oh, you already talked about that. Man, I am. <laughs> did I fall asleep? Yeah, probably. So how do you treat all these pulmonary infections? Um, you know, you're going to think about broad spectrum upfront anyway, hospitalization, low threshold for hospitalization. If you can get an organism out of the blood or sputum, which of course is always a little bit more challenging, um, you're going to want to try to do that. And they might need really prolonged treatment up to four weeks. Gee, many Christmas. Right. Well, let's move on because I've been waiting for this, the rare infections, rarer. Uh, rarer. I don't oh. know if that's a word. That's why I put it in parentheses. Oh, rarer oh. infections. Let's talk about the weird stuff. Tetanus. Ugh. It, it makes sense in Lock, a way. Lockjaw? But you just, I don't know. I didn't really think of it. But IV drug users are accounted for about 15% of all cases of tetanus between the years 1998 and 2000. I mean, that's a huge percentage. You know, it's interesting because you, you think about that. And even when we do intakes on people, we should be really making sure they're up to date on their tetanus. I don't, we should. I don't think about that that often with all of the stuff we check. Especially because you survived tetanus with your nail stepping on earlier this year. Yeah, right <laughs> through my foot. Um, yeah. and, and often this can be the not only like the shared and old needles, um, contamination of the drugs themselves with clostridium. You don't know where the drugs are coming from. They are not obviously FDA approved. So you never know what's in them. Wow. And this will, of course, often happen in clusters. People who are buying the same drugs will often all have the same complications as you'd expect. Yeah, we also talked about necrotizing fasciitis before. Um, but of course, again, that that's a rare infection. Uh, looks like you have a little study here from 2000 where 88 users in England, Scotland, and Ireland were hospitalized and more than 30 died in an outbreak of toxic shock syndrome. So more than 30%. I mean, that's that's high. These are weird drugs, too. I've never even, or excuse me, weird bugs. <laughs> weird bugs. They're all clostridium, but yeah. different types of clostridium. you've heard of that. Perfringes I've heard of, but not Niovi. Novi. Or Sordelli. No. All right. Other yeah. rare infections. I'm going to move on. Clostridial? Clostridial infections. So you got to think this when people are doing black tar heroin, primarily. I mean, most black tar heroin comes out of Mexico. Um, so black tar heroin is the most common infectious causing substance that there is of illicit drugs. Wow. And this will often be with that skin popping, of course, because you're just kind of, you're not going right into a vein. You're just kind of going into the skin. Um, yeah. Mm, I think this is, you know, true too. When, when patients present, I think often they're 
maybe misdiagnosed because they may look intoxicated, but they're actually infected. Isn't that weird? Yeah. So they come in and it's like, oh, we've seen this guy before. He's just intoxicated, but in fact, an overwhelming infection. Right. You know, why botulism is bad, tetanus is bad. You get this paralysis, troubles with everything, cranial nerve palsy. So how do you treat it? Antitoxin, wound debridement, antibiotics, a lot of supportive cares. Yeah, every time I've gotten that, it's like wrecked a week (laughs) of my life. Yeah, I've never seen this. But again... More of the story, let's make sure they're up to date on yeah. their tetanus shots. Yeah, botulism, is, that, that'll blow a week. Um, and, of course, anthrax. Man, we haven't of heard course. about anthrax for a long time. It was it was big for a while because everybody thought they were getting it in envelopes that were sent to them. Okay, but. so let's go to the next slide. So if you're talking about anthrax inhalation, just because that was whole, yep. you know, so this is going to obviously be more with your smoking and your snorting, but it can cause hemorrhagic mediastinitis. So bleeding in the middle of your chest, not good. No. So fever, cough, shortness of breath, but it can cause very rapidly. This is when I read this, I was like, oh my gosh. So rapidly fulminate, fulminate. So it goes quickly to bad. And then you have horrible respiratory failure, shock and death within five days. So basically this is diagnosis at post. Post-mortem, right. Yeah. Because the only place you can really like stop anthrax is if you're giving the antibiotics during this prodromal phase. So the phase of fever, cough, shortness of breath. Once you get to the spread, it's almost always fatal. And there have been some cases of this. I mean, you had some little things listed, right. different cases over in Scotland. Correct. So we're going to kind of back up to the IV version of anthrax, and then we'll kind of touch on that even more. But how does it cause it when it's injected? Spores. So these anthrax spores get mixed in with the substances. Um, and so it, it takes a little bit longer to get bad than the inhalation version. So you'll first notice some papules that look bruised. So these raised more firm areas in the skin that look bruised, which will then blister and cause ulcers. And then you'll kind of get this painless, nasty black ulcer. That's not good. Yeah, boy. And that all these confirmed cases actually in Scotland, do you think that's because they wear kilts? <laughs> I mean, I'm just... I'm just you know? I'm just winging it here, but could it be the kilts? I, may, maybe, I uh. doubt it. But I think, you know, again, it's these clusters. So where you're getting the substances, especially what they're cut with. They say mm. that this, if it's a 100% pure substance, it's not going to cause this. It has to be something, usually it comes from something that was cut into it. Mm. It's uh. interesting that the mortality is less than 1% if you get the meds right away. Doxia 20% if you don't. Yeah, you don't get it. It's not good, but right. mm, 17 people died in Scotland in 2009. Uh, 52. Yeah. So, so that's that's bad. Bad batch. Definitely bad. All right. So those are kind of the com- common rare infections. That's an oxymoron. So if you're the IV drug use, the, the rare, rare things that I guess somewhere in your mind you need to think about or get them to an infectious disease doctor rapidly. Um, so how do you prevent these infections you know, safer injection, hand hygiene, those are the big things. Well, and there's a lot of places uh, that we know of, uh, addiction doctors in the Twin Cities, who, who actually hand, give handouts about how to inject safely um, to make sure that we don't have these issues. And it is, it's, that, it's all about cleaning and, and cleansing the areas and using needles that have not been used and, and such. So it's not rocket science, but it's something that, you know, people need to really think about. And then other things that, again, sound pretty common, you're going to want to avoid sharing any equipment. Don't lick the needle, as we discussed. Don't reuse the filter. Now, this is going to be a hard one to ever convince anybody to do because when you filter your substance through some type of a filtration thing, 
some of the the drug that you want gets caught in the filter. So people will reuse filters um, to try to get more of the substance out, but that yeah. does increase that risk. Yeah, or they lick or sip on the spoon after they've solubilized it. Which again, yeah. you're gonna introduce all those mouth bacteria right into yeah. the the needle. I just always think that the licking the needle thing. Ugh, I just. So let's talk about harm reduction, and and this is something that I think it takes a while to really grasp that that it's so important. The needle exchanges, the supervised inject supervised injection facilities, and and again teaching people how to do this the right way as a form of harm reduction. So actually, the solubilizing, if you're doing it with a full boil, is actually going to be better. I mean, as we kind of so you heat food. Um, to kind of kill off bacteria, but making sure you get to a full boil, clean your skin with alcohol, but bleaching the paraphernalia. Now, a lot of people don't do this because again, there's some drug left in, you know, whatever you're using. So they don't like to clean it all the way, but you're going to want to bleach that. Don't share. Often people who are injecting drugs will have other behaviors that are maybe not as safe. So you're going to want to teach on these unprotected sex, multiple partners. Those are all obviously a high risk for other infections, which then make them more at risk of other infections, um, and then do the vaccination. So we've kind of learned something today with the tetanus especially. Yeah, that's one thing we've kind of maybe not thought about as much as we should have. I mean, we think about, you know, the hep B and hep A, you know, making sure we vaccinate against those things. But, yeah, Correct. now we've just added something. Yeah. And, of course, where do you inject? I mean, I think that the safest place, obviously, for patients is really – um, and people who are using IV drugs is really their arms. And, um, you know, we've seen patients who are doing it in the jugular, and, uh, boy, the complications from that have been uh, disastrous. But even when you're using your arms, you really want to try to educate on rotating even the area of the vein, even if it's just a few inches, um, because you want to not cause all that inflammation and damage to that vein because – that creates a lot of tissue damage, which if it's inflamed can increase your risk of infection as we kind of talked about last week. But try to rotate the sites in the hands or the arms, excuse me. You don't want to use the hands, the feet and the legs. Yeah. Although we have seen this frequently. Um, they're small and fragile. The, the veins are, they bruise easily. Um, if you get an infection in the hands and the feet, especially, they're more disabling because I mean, you need your hands and your feet. Um, they have slower circulation, so it can take longer to clear an infection. And, I mean, if you think the feet, a lot of people will do their feet because it can hide track marks, if you will. Yep. Um, but think about your feet and sweaty, stinky socks and just feet in general are gross. Maybe yours. But, <laughs> you know, again, so avoid the femoral artery. You know, you got a nerve in there that you don't want to hit. The neck, again, we talked about. Most people don't inject right into the femoral artery. Yeah, and breast, <laughs> you know, breast veins, small and fragile, and it, it can cause a little trouble there, so. And then you don't want to inject into the penis. Yeah. I'm you a, can get that infection in your penis and priapism. Yeah, that just doesn't sound like a, a treat. Um, but I think one of the things as we talk about this to remember, I think people, some people may listen and go, wow, I can't believe we'd be sitting down explaining to people how to do this. But every time we meet with patients who use IV drugs or any uh, substances like that, it's another opportunity for them, for us to offer them help. Exactly. And I think that every contact you have with them is important to, to make them understand that you'll be there if they are ready to change. Correct. I think sometimes also they're... Um I mean, that was a good ending, but I also Yeah, you could have just stopped, and what I said would have been, like, perfect. It's like, wow. Eh. But curved. I think sometimes, 
you know, you meet patients and although to some of us you might think, oh my gosh, that's the greatest risky thing ever is injecting drugs into your veins. But I, you know, with the disease of addiction, you don't necessarily see that because you're, you're, you have this disease and you're sometimes more afraid of the infections. You're more afraid of, you know, the skin. I mean, how many times have you seen that people like, oh my gosh, I have this big abscess, help me. They don't necessarily see the risk the same way we do. And so, like you said, getting them in to get those things treated will just at least open that door. Yep. I think that's kind of the point I made when I was ending this podcast. I was just kind just of about saying, 30 seconds ago. Changing but, the perspective. Yeah. So that was part two. And we will have one other little part to the IV drug use um, series, which is just going to be three. It's not a big series. And that's going to be uh, discussing this fun paper that Dr. Bell found. And yeah. do you have a name for that paper? Um, I do. It's let me grab it. <laughs> Otherwise, it's echoey. Risk practices associated with bacterial infections among injecting drug users in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. So it has a lot of interesting stuff in there. So we're going to probably touch on that the next time. So we will let Battle Legs take over. And thanks again for listening today. And have a good week. Sun is rising high, burning into the day. I will say goodbye. I'll be going away. Brush away my doubts. What tomorrow will hold. Feeling fine for now. Going down the road to a city to sing. About the trees and the wind. About the hills in the spring. The bend, the rocky deep pass, and the poppies and ponies running through the grass, up and down the road. They paid for the stories they're told of a clear new day, only down the road. So heavy rain at my back, lazy meadows ahead. In my book, I keep track of the promises set for my songs in a town. say goodbye I'll be going away I brush away my doubts what tomorrow will hold feel it fine for now going down the road
now. 